It's November 26th. It's Friday. And you're locked into Real Talk. Sarah Hoyle's looking to be eyes wide. What is shaking? Audio levels have changed and your headphones just said, good morning. In a way that uh, we, we people don't know that as we're getting ready for the shows here, and we, we'll, we'll typically have some pretty chill tunes going on. And we're all keeping it quiet. And there's actually not a lot of talking. Everybody has their headphones on. Sometimes someone's pulling clips or getting some audio ready. And it's just really... And then and then about two minutes before we go, the lights go up. And that's kind of the first rude awakening. The second f- wonderful awakening is Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen. That's a track from their unbelievable album. Desolation sounds released on Fallen Tree Records. We're always grateful to be able to spin that. And then my th- rude awakening to you today, the timber and tone of my voice. Everybody, this show is presented by the team at Bitcoin. Well, my friend Graham pays a lot of attention. Graham Duty, by the way, not just my friend, my personal trainer. Boy, does he have his work cut out for him. <laughs> Check him out online at GrahamDuty.com. Graham's talking to me the other day, and he, he's got a lot of theories and opinions. He does a lot of reading, schools himself a lot on, on Bitcoin and trends and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, hey, have you talked to the team at Bitcoin well about the ups and the downs and maybe what's coming up over the next little bit? And I was like, ah, no, not yet, but I will. Because when I have a serious question about where Bitcoin's going, that's where I go to Bitcoin well and to the sponsors tab on our website at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We've got a great show in store. It's uh, Friday, which means we've got our traditional Real Talk roundtable and and kind of back-to-back roundtables today. You may have seen uh, reporting yesterday across the country, job vacancies soar beyond one million in a tightening labor market, and it's especially relevant in B.C. and Quebec. We're going to talk to Jessica Kulo from Specialized Recruiting Group. They work with more than 500 companies uh, to place people into jobs, whether it's temporary work, contract work, permanent stuff, direct hire placement, search services, headhunters. That's what Jessica does. And then Mikhail Scuderu, I saw him, the economist out of the University of Waterloo, tweeting about coming on the show. We're excited to talk to him. He does a lot of work digging into labor markets and coming up with a better understanding of what's going on there. This may have something to do. I mean, obviously, I think has a little bit to do with the pandemic, maybe a lot. We'll figure out to what degree, but there's other trends happening in the workplace, too, and and maybe not directly pandemic related, but maybe as spinoffs. And so we're going to get into this. Nearly a fifth of all vacancies across the country in hospitality. That includes restaurants and hotels. You probably know this already. If you've been talking to people that own or manage restaurants or hotels right now saying we'd love to provide better service right now, we'd love to be able to fire on all cylinders, but we can't because hiring is really difficult right now. It's good news if you're in the job market, but how do you best position yourself? We'll get into that as well. Our 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 traditional eleven o'clock Eastern, nine o'clock Mountain, and because I can do the math, eight o'clock Pacific. Real talk roundtable coming up, and maybe it's probably makes more sense to announce the Pacific time zone because we're talking uh, quite directly about our neighbors and our fellow Canadians in British Columbia right now. Do we rebuild or do we stop reconstruction? I mean, what's the plan when it comes to the intelligent 
response. I'm not talking immediate. We're not talking rescue operations. We're not talking about the here and now, right now. You know, is this atmospheric river? They're expecting the, you know, these this next one, maybe one after that. Arno Kopetsky yesterday, amazing on the show. If you missed that, The Environmentalist Dilemma, his new book, talking to us about some of the more esoteric, kind of more theoretical approaches to how we should move on from this and, and almost a call to action on each one of us personally. I loved that conversation yesterday. This one, bigger picture with Glenn McGillivray from the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction uh, out of uh, York University. What a get. Robin Edger, formerly at the Pamina Institute, now National Director of Climate Change at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. What an interesting job. I mean, with tens of billions of dollars at stake there. And then Joe Robles going to join us. Uh, Joe's served on the board, BC Road Builders, Heavy Construction Association, BC Construction Safety. I mean, this guy's done a ton. The chair of the Canadian Construction Association. Oh, yeah. And he and his colleagues built parts of the Coquihalla, the Coquihalla Highway, which obviously requires a lot of attention right now. So that's going to be a great roundtable coming up in about a half an hour's time. I want to get to a, an email before we get to our conversation about labor. This one arrived in our inbox this week from Russ. And, and if you've been tuned into the show this week, you know that we've been celebrating our one year anniversary, our, our first birthday as a show and the incredible audience, this community that we've built, the conversation we've hosted and where we intend to go in year two. We're super excited about that. So Russ reaches out and he says, you know, I, I wanted to send a congratulatory note. It sounds like you've got a ton of them and I'm glad to hear it. He says, I had a, a unique path to becoming a real talker. And I go, OK. He says, I am a news junkie, but I've never been one to get my information from the radio. So I, I had no idea who you were, Ryan. And I had heard you know, about your story and all these things. And I had heard of a new venture. But to be honest, I hadn't checked it out. And suddenly I had to. Like, I actually had to monitor you, Ryan. And he says, and I know it sounds creepy, but I'm the senior account manager for Nikon Canada. And he says, and I'm working out of my home home office right now here in Edmonton. And, and in the spring, McBain Camera approached me about running ads on Real Talk. And he said, uh, so I knew you weren't traditional media. And I knew that your ad reads are, you, you kind of like are, you know, read them as you see them. You call them as you see them. You personalize them. These are your endorsements. And he says, I'm used to approving scripts. And he says, but Nikon's cool to try new things with our advertising and growing our base and, and the landscape continues to change. But he said, I had to do some quality control, like is Nikon getting our money's worth? And he says, and all of a sudden I'm sucked in. He says, I love the dialogue. I love the hard hitting questions, the variety of topics. My job changed like it did for many other people during COVID. But as much as, you know, my industry changes as a whole. So I'm, I'm looking at, at potentially spending more time kind of desk bound and fewer time actually mingling with people. Russ, I feel your pain, man. He says, I've lost a bit of that community in my day to day. And my role has expanded now to managing all of Western Canada at a boy. He says major corporate accounts as well. He says, but 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 now every workday. I'm joining these real talkers. I'm tuning into the show. I stream it on YouTube while I'm working. He says, oftentimes, you know, be, due to work, I have to pause the feed. So sometimes I'll be behind. But he says, I haven't finished a workday without finishing a real talk episode in months. He says, I can't participate in the live chat, you know, so I appreciate, though, when you get to people's comments, I enjoy it immensely. He says, I've added so many Twitter follows based on guests you've had on the show. He says, what about this Ubaka Ogbogu guy? Wow. He says, what an eye-opening education for a guy as white as this email background. 
He says, I met Slavo Czech, the sculptor, buying one of his beautiful chaos pendants for my wife to contribute to the Julie Rohr scholarship. I was so inspired and so saddened by the loss of someone I never knew. And he says, and I absolutely squealed when you mentioned Mark Jinks, the photographer the other day during your My Jasper Memories. He says he's a Nikon shooter and he's a good friend of mine. Russ says, I truly feel like I'm part of a legit community. He says, now listen, with my recent job changes, I'm busier than ever. Stress goes up, but listening to you has always been something to look forward to, even on a Monday. And Trash Talk Fridays are as satisfying as a well-earned cold beer at the end of a day. Just wait till this one, pal. Later today. It's me. It's like mean tweets. RJ edition. He says, I, I enjoy honest journalism, quality questions and conversations that need to happen, but don't always happen. Thanks to all three of you, Ryan, Sarah, Sam, for the education, the inspiration, the many laughs. Thanks for even the visceral facts that you want to hear sometimes. Some solidarity in knowing that you're not the only one screaming into your morning coffee. Keep up the good work. Thanks for what you've brought to my days. Thanks for passing my inspection and then giving me something I wasn't even looking for. That is one of the greatest emails I've ever received in my entire life. Russ from Nikon Canada. He says, P.S. Great reads for our holiday ads. If you ever want to go see one of those things in person, let me know. The ZFC is a beautiful camera. What do you mean, Russ? Do you mean the Nikon ZFC that you can pick up right now? Because the Nikon Black Friday said this was a, just a big elaborate lead into the Nikon McBain camera read today. But also Russ, I mean. But Russ. Great. Just blowing our Love doors you. off. So McBain Camera and Nikon's Black Friday sales on right now. This is your chance to capture iconic moments with classically styled camera design. Look at that. I love that rig. Unbelievable. It's like it looks, it's like that classic style from 30 years ago, but today's technology, right? So you have precision carved, pre precision carved, better be precise with that word, precision carved aluminum dials, engraved markings, mechanical controls for shutter speed, ISO exposure compensation, it's got this screen that can hide away when you're not using it for vlogging and video. And right now you can save a hundred bucks on the Nikon ZFC and that 16 to 50 millimeter lens kit. It's just $13.99. Includes a free roots shoulder bag. Visit McBainCamera.com. McBainCamera.com today to see a full list of Nikon Black Friday deals. McBain, create to inspire. And before we get to our first interview today, I have to tell you about how Poppy Barley does Black Friday. I absolutely adore this company. This company makes the shoes that I wear every day and I love them, including today. Sam, we can't do it, can we? Can you show me camera? Can I show everybody my new poppy? Oh my goodness, I love these things. I'm gonna pull a hamstring. Don't worry about it, Sam. If I try it anymore, I'm gonna hurt myself. I was gonna say, your personal trainer is impressed Graham, right now. Graham Duty is going, it's working. It's working, look it's at that. Working. Great extension, great extension. At poppybarley.com right now, you can read about how you can shop for good. So they put purpose over profit this weekend with their Black Friday fund. So they do it a little bit differently. Rather than just having a sale at poppybarley.com, here's the way they do it. They leverage one of the busiest shopping days of the year for good. And so they donate 100% of proceeds from now until Sunday, up to 15 grand to a charity. And this year they're supporting Water First's mission to address drinking water challenges in indigenous communities. They want to inspire future voices in water science and education. I invite you to shop for good this week at Poppy Barley stores in Market Mall, Southgate Center in Alberta's capital city, or shop online anywhere 
at poppybarley.com. They'll get it to you before Christmas. Unbelievable shoes. Love my Poppy Barleys. So we got some issues going on across the country right now, most especially in BC and Quebec, but, but this is relevant regardless of where you live. There's a labor shortage across the country, more than a million jobs right now up for the taking uh, in in some circumstances employers are, are throwing up their hands they don't know what to do so we wanted to go to a couple of experts i mean this is their wheelhouse if you have a question right now if you're watching or listening if you're streaming on the mixler audio app live we invite you to tweet at us using the hashtag real talk rj and you can hit us up in the live chat too if you have a great question we'd love to ask it on your behalf jessica Kulo is president of specialized recruiting group they work with as i mentioned more than 500 companies to put people into roles. I'll ask her, does she prefer or not prefer the term headhunter? My impression is that's exactly what she does. Mikhail Scooter is a professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Waterloo. His research interests include the labor market integration of immigrants, labor market policies that affect hours of work. Hopefully we'll get to that today. The economics of unions and most recently the impact of the pandemic on the Canadian labor market. Jessica Mikhail, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Jessica, is it, is it fair to call you a headhunter? Is it accurate is what you do yes that's completely fine and fair (laughs) so what do you note about what's going on right now across the country i mean how much busier have you been trying to help employers get scaled back up it's very very interesting we're extremely busy busier than we've ever been in 17 years Um, and that's across all industries all disciplines all all facets of our business um, and it's not going away, I don't think, anytime soon. We're, we're seeing a trend that um, doesn't have an end in sight. Uh, recently, I was exposed to a, a learning opportunity. Um, ITR Economics out of the U.S. said the same, and they predict this will carry on until 2030, where then they actually predict a Great Depression. But um, I, I don't think it's a short-term problem. Okay, so we're, I mean, I'll I'll reference a story in the Globe and Mail, Uh, Mikhail, as we come to you, job vacancies soar beyond a million. And what they're saying is a tightening labor market. Matt Lundy, the economics reporter on this, the number of employed Canadians now higher than it was before the pandemic, but labor participation rate has recovered in most age brackets, which is good, right? But job vacancies still there, employers struggling to fill positions. Why do you think this is happening? I mean, you've been keeping a keen eye on pandemic impacts for more than a year now. Yeah, so I, I sort of got shot out of teaching and being at work. Uh, so I needed something to entertain myself during the pandemic. And so I've, I've really uh, been following it throughout the, the crisis. And, and we've sort of turned the corner for sure and are at a different point in the economic recovery, where now what seems to have happened is a lot of those workers that were displaced in the initial shutdowns um, have moved on to other things. And, and so what we're seeing now is what often happens in an economic crisis is you get um, structural changes in the economy. You get reallocation of where the jobs are. Um, we knew that was going to happen. I mean, economists were predicting that quite early in the pandemic. But this is sort of what's playing out. It's kind of like a game of musical chairs. And there are, you know, chairs, free chairs opening up in some places and, and workers are players in the game somewhere else, and it's just a reshuffling. Um, and, and that's going to take time. But I think Jess is right. I think she's absolutely right that this is part of a longer-term trend. 
And uh, Jess, I don't want it to just fly under the radar that you said that uh, there's predictions that we could see a depression uh, in about nine years from now. That's something we should certainly talk about before we're done our conversation here today. But, but can both of you, Jess, we'll come back to you first. Maybe both of you can try to help me understand this. So, so Canada's labor market, they say you know it's rebounding and there's more people working now than before and participation in different age brackets is encouraging and higher than we would have anticipated, yet there's still a million unfilled positions. So, so, so what's going on here? There's a bunch of factors. I think the um, most prevalent is just this gap in skills, um, especially for entry-level positions, but also a, a misalignment in expectations between employers and job seekers or employees. Um, there's, there's definitely, um, I mean, I can always see both sides of it. There's components of uh, experience where employers will want specific industry or direct industry experience no matter what, direct software experience no matter what. There's differences in expectations when it comes to things like compensation and benefits, flexibility, remote, not remote. Um, there's, there's a lot of different factors that all come into play and uh, it's an education piece, it's a communication piece and um, yeah, there's a lot for employers to consider. Definitely. Yeah, we've got a really interesting comment here in our live chat from Wally. Uh, McKellen, I wonder if you maybe want to take this one first. Wally says, you know, there's not a labor shortage. There's a shortage of jobs that actually put food on your table and treat you well, that keep you inspired and that make you want to wake up in the morning. I see both of you nodding. McKellen, you want to go first on that one? Well, I think that's right. Whether you want to call it, my, my preference is not to call it a labor shortage, but just a tightening of labor markets. Mm. And, and that's a healthy thing. Um, there's lots to be said. So yeah, there's the chart that, that I made yesterday. Um, so I've been following this measure of the number of, of job vacancies per job seeker. And you know, a tight labor market's good because it, it, it encourages that reallocation. Part of what happens is that there are scarcities for workers in some sectors. And the way those scarcities are dealt with in a capitalist society with competitive labor markets is that work businesses that need to hire workers need to compete for those scarce workers. And the way they do that is through the price. So they bid up prices, which are the wages that workers are paid, but also the working conditions, how attractive these jobs are, whether they can offer flex time or working from home and so on. And so you're going to get this bidding up, which attracts workers away from some sectors where the jobs may be less attractive towards where the towards where the new jobs are, where the growth is. And that's very much a you know a very positive, healthy part of an economy. So labor shortage has these negative connotations. Um, I think what we're seeing is actually has a lot of it encourages a lot of innovation too. It it forces employers to be very productive to make sure that they're using their workers efficiently, right? Um, and and so and and to in, you know invest in new technologies that maybe you know complement the workers that they can hire. Um, so yeah, there's lots to lots of positive coming out of this. But I, I should mention Alberta is definitely out an outlier here. So I'm guessing most of your listeners are from Alberta. A good number. It, it isn't following the same pattern. Okay, well let's talk about Alberta. <laughs> yeah, so Alberta for sure. And these um, numbers I was producing yesterday, I also produced those by province. Um, Alberta, that so the, the the basic number, which I think is pretty easy to digest, is nationally, what we've got is almost one job per job seeker. In BC and in, in Quebec, in Quebec, it's the highest. In Quebec, there's almost one and a half jobs per job seeker. Mm. In Alberta, it's half 
a job per job seeker, half, compared to Quebec of one and a half. So Alberta, um, it doesn't have quite the tight labor markets that we're seeing in, in many other parts of the country. Okay, so does this mean, Jessica, when you hear that, you, you're working out of Alberta, right? I mean, uh, does this mean that job seekers in uh, in Edmonton or Calgary or Fort McMurray or Red Deer, Grand Prairie, Lethbridge, wherever they are, uh, do they have less leverage? I mean, do, you know, do, do you encourage people to look to other jurisdictions, BC, maybe a little bit more friendly for people looking to really nail down a contract that's that's employee friendly, so to speak? I mean, what does your counsel look like to, to the, on the job seeking side? You know, I, I don't, we don't see that difference too. It's not too prevalent. Mm. Um, everything you were saying there though, about how employers need to come back better is we're definitely seeing that it's very competitive. You need to come back as an employer with all of these things in mind, you need to come back with better environments, better programs, better support, better compensation, better benefits. Um, so we're seeing it's very, very competitive and um, we're encouraging our clients to really make their decisions based on data as well. So, you know, if you look at things like compensation plan reviews, well, you, you can't be considering what you should be offering new employees based on what you have been offering. You have to look at what the actual market is seeing, and, and we're seeing an increase in Alberta. Um, same with benefits. What do your people want? Not what have you always done? Uh, what do they want for an environment? So I would say it's, it is very competitive, Edmonton, Calgary. We don't work so much in the rural communities. So I can't speak to that. But in Edmonton and the major cities, we definitely are seeing it. And Jessica, you work, do you work both sides of the equation? Like, do you, have, do you have job seekers and employers that are both coming to you at Express Employment Professionals? We do. Um, so we work with unemployed. We also work with employed, though. So as you mm. said, headhunting, we're having people take take different positions or take on better roles that are better suited to them. So have you um, seen so- anything interesting with regards to what employers are doing to dangle carrots and incentivize work and pull people from across the street? I mean, what really jumps out at you? There's lots of unique things. It really comes down to what the candidate is looking for, though, and what their expectations are, provided they're reasonable, generally. Um, so customization, I guess, would be something that generally across the board is what people are looking for. Uh, makes them feel more like a person than a number. But there's some other unique things like deferred compensation plans. Um, that's more of a retention. For a raise. I mean, aside from Sarah and Sam. <laughs> you know, asking for a raise, it, it's, there's, it's always a good time, provided, again, you have the data to back it up. It, where that, that can run awry is where a candidate or an employee is looking and asking for compensation based on their mortgage payment or based on their lifestyle. It has to be, it has to be market driven. It has to be performance driven. Um, and, and there are resources out there for people to use. Hmm. Mikhail, um, I know that, you know, people will have situation specific realities when we say, how do you best position yourself for this? How do, how do you best maximize, you know, how do you sort of seize the day, so to speak? But are, are there any overarching themes when, when people are walking away from this and going like, yeah, real talk, we had, uh, these great experts on talking about the job market. And I got the sense that it's kind of a time of opportunity. And then their friend goes, great. So what are you going to do about it? And they're going to go like, what are a couple things that they should keep in mind? So uh, just talked about information. I, I think that's hugely important. We're, we're, we're in a world of incredible amounts of information. And I think labor market information has definitely improved in Canada. We've invested a lot more in it to understand where the jobs are, um, where the wages and what sectors of the economy wages are rising. And, and so I think at this point, 
you know, we talked earlier about that there, it is true that joblessness levels are still quite high. I mean, that's the, the unusual situation that we're in, that we have relatively high unemployment still. Um, if you look broader definitions of joblessness, even higher. Um, and the biggest problem that I'm most concerned about is the share of our jobless workers now that have been jobless for very long periods of time, for more than a year. More than half of Canada's jobless have been um, jobless for more than a year. So those folks getting back into the labor market is tough. So what I would say is increasingly we need to be talking about, I mean, this is where somebody like you and your show, Ryan, you have a lot of influences, is talking about, you know, where those opportunities are, um, where the growth is, because it's definitely there. Um, so, you know, I have kids that are thinking about careers and, and going to university soon. And, and what I tell them is like digital skills are just incredibly important and are getting more and more important. Um, so things like that, you know, um, and investing, you know, investing in those skills is, is, is really important at this time. OK, before we go, uh, Jessica, we, we, our eyebrows raised when you said, you know, everybody's maybe expecting a depression, uh, not even a recession. You said depression, uh, you know, around 2030. I don't know if you want to, like, throw a dart and nail it down that tight. But but I'd love for both of you to comment on that before we go. Or otherwise, I feel like the, the audience may be undersatiated. So, Jessica, what are you keeping an eye on as best you can? I mean, we're talking a decade from now, but what might be some of the factors? What might be some of the theory behind it? And is there anything people can do aside from squirreling away some cash? and preparing themselves that way and, and i don't mean literal cash uh but where should our heads be at on that it's not my prediction it is something i i was told um but i i do know our industry anyhow is a leading indicator so if there are any recessions or depressions that are coming we do see it first um we book about an 18 month lead time typically or we start to see uncertainty and hiring slowing down and then layoffs um we are not seeing that now so i i'm not um I'm not certain that it will actually be a reality. And again, it's an American uh, prediction, but we're keeping an eye on things. Professor, is there an economist that wants to go on the record nine years ahead of a forecasted event and <laughs> talk about whether or not it's going to happen? I, I do not do predictions uh, because I don't like being wrong. Sure. Uh, so, um, no, I mean, there's no economist can predict that anywhere in the world. No Nobel laureate has, has it, that kind of wisdom. Um, there, I mean, there is some concern, of course, um, and, the, and the big concern right now, if there is one, is, is inflation pressures that, that will force, um, look like they will eventually force uh, the central bank, um, the Fed in the U.S. and, and, and the Bank of Canada, Canada uh, to, to raise interest rates. That will put a damper on, on, on some of this recruitment, uh, investment, you know, Corporate investments are going to be affected. Um, yeah, so I, I think there is re some some reason certainly for concern. But talking about depressions ten years from now, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I, I think ten years from now. I mean, ten years ago, most people weren't on social media. I don't think Tesla was a thing yet. Most of us, right. were, some of us, were still on dial-up. Yeah, let's keep our perspective, but also. Hey, this is an audience that expects to be one or two or three steps ahead of everybody else. So thanks to the both of you for this. It's uh, Professor Mikkel Scuderud out of the University of Waterloo, uh, out of the Department of Economics there, and Jessica Kulo, who's the president of Specialized Recruiting Group. You can check them out online at expresspros.com. Have a great weekend, you two, and thanks for doing this. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. You got it. Good conversation.
you got this like I'm looking for a raised look on your face. Well, this is I don't know what you're talking. This about. is where we need like we need drapes that just go right across the plexiglass. Whoosh. There we go. I need my privacy right now. <laughs> I can't even look at you right now. What kind of host would I be if I didn't transition directly from that conversation into a reminder that Athabasca University is Canada's online university? And if you're looking for, you know, you want to get a degree. Uh, you're like, I'm, I'm. it's time to get serious. I'm getting a degree. AU is a good fit for you. If you want to just upgrade a class or take a course or learn more about something, maybe improve yourself in a certain context along certain lines based on goals you've set for yourself. Guess what? AU works for you. Athabasca University gives you control over your life. Thanks to flexibility and openness, you can check them out online today at AthabascaU.ca. Learn more about the application, the admissions process, and, and then maybe even learn more about some of the resources available. If you're, you don't know necessarily what you want to do, you just know where you want to get, which is somewhere other than where you are right now. AthabascaU.ca. Our friends at Kubi Energy are providing solar energy solutions to power your life, and that includes solar panel installs, residential, commercial, industrial, agricultural. Is there anything they don't do? The answer is no. You can go to kubienergy.ca today to get a free quote. Maybe get some different ideas. Jake and his team love to troubleshoot. They love to get creative on how they can take your entire off-grid setup and power it up. They've been doing it for years, earning the return business of their customers at kubienergy.ca. Our friends at Breathe Outdoors know that it's, of course, a huge time for shopping over these next few days. And that's why I want to tell you about their Shop Black Friday event at breatheoutdoors.ca. It runs all the way through till November 29th in store and online. You can shop all 28 brands on sale, 28 brands on sale, including Merrill at 30% off or outdoor research at 25% off. I love my outdoor research gear. Smart wool, some of my favorite socks are 25% off right now. Great for the hiker in your life. Osprey gear, 20% off. Tilly, 10% off. Tilly never goes on sale. You know, I still wear my grandpa's Tilly hat when I go fishing. Oh, yeah. That is adorable. They say with the Tilly hat, they say, you, you know, if you have one, it says up inside, it says, leave it in your will. And uh, Grandpa didn't officially leave it in his will. I just swiped it. A yoink. I was like, that Tilly hat is coming with me. And I wear Grandpa's Tilly hat every time I go fishing. 10% off right now at breatheoutdoors.ca. Of course, we're paying attention to British Columbia. How can we not? Uh, yesterday, Arno Kopetsky with just in my mind, a fascinating challenge for all of us to to really evaluate kind of how we live and what we prioritize. And it, it was one of these exercises that I think it's really important to go through every once in a while to take a look at our personal footprint on the planet. And as we look all around us, how can we ignore that things are changing the question is, as we rebuild, and I'm talking literally, communities, homes, rec centers, highways, railroads, what's the best way to do it? What should bridges look like to be able to withstand some of the pressures that maybe we don't even quite yet fully understand? We wanted to go to sources on this that know exactly what they're talking about. Sarah Hoyles has delivered on this one. Glenn McGillivray is managing director of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, a professor in the graduate program at York University's 
Emergency and Disaster Management Program. Robin Edger is the National Director of Climate Change at the Insurance Bureau of Canada, formerly at Pembina Institute. And Joe Robel, for more than 30 years, has been in the construction industry. He's president and GM of the JPW Group of Companies, including JPW Road and Bridge. And he was the chair of the Canadian Construction Association for the most recent term. Glenn, Robin, Joe, thanks so much for making time for us. Joe, I want to start with you. I, I heard a rumor. You actually, you're one of those. You actually got your hands and your, dudes, your boots dirty building the Coquihalla. You're one of the guys. Your cruise was helped building the Coquihalla. Where's your head at right now taking a look at the destruction on that highway and others? Well, yes, I, uh, I was involved in the uh, design and construction phase of that and uh, through some of the areas that uh, have now failed um, was the some of the particular spots where uh, I basically walked every inch of that. Um, I guess when I look at it, uh, my first thing is uh, I'm certainly feel some some sorrow for those in, in all of everything that's happened uh, that are deeply affected by by this uh, disaster. Uh, but I'm relieved in some ways that uh, there wasn't uh, more people uh, personally affected. In other words, there was uh, no one, no major people trapped or caught or swept off the roads or into uh, uh, went into the river in any parts of the Coquihalla. So uh, that part for sure. And then uh, the next thing is when you look at it and you say, we when we constructed that one, um, the construction phase and the design was from 1976. It was opened in 1986. Uh, it was state of the art. Uh, it was an engineering marvel and uh, things have changed. So do we have engineers right now? I mean, no, hang on. I'm not, they always say, don't, don't ask a question you already know the answer to. And I know you're going to say there are skilled and talented engineers across this country. And I know that to be true because I've hosted awards galas for engineers and I'm always amazed at what they can do. But let me ask, Joe, is it, is it, is it too soon to look back and say we recognize why some of these failures occurred and we know currently how to address that moving forward? Or is there still some fact finding to do? Well, there's definitely some more fact finding that has to occur, but, you know, it was, again, it was constructed in 1986. Uh, there's been a number of changes since um, the ministry. I know in some of the projects that I've worked on in the last few years, uh, the Ministry of Transportation has uh, put in place some uh, sort of resilience to uh, to the infrastructure. So they have tried to incorporate some of that. So they have been making some changes to their design. Uh, there just needs to be much more. Glenn, you're the adjunct professor in the graduate program at York University's uh, Emergency and Disaster Management Program. This is the type of thing that'll get written right into your curriculum, right? Well, there's no question about it. I mean, this is a biggie. I think, unfortunately, Canada's kind of graduated into the big times with this event. Uh, we are, you know, we see some really big events coming out of places like the United States. And, you know, we had the Fort McMurray fire, which was quite big. Uh, but this is really big, and this kind of puts us up there with, with some of the other huge losses we've seen uh, in the U.S. and globally. So you're managing director for the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, uh, which would lead me to believe that there has to, there, there has to be the premise in place that either we can better build communities and infrastructure or we can take action on climate change to try to slow or reverse some of these trends. So how do you approach loss reduction? Yeah, so our our work is with the former. Uh, we look to build a, a hardened uh, a community, basically, a more resilient community, whether that's uh, building our homes better, uh, retrofitting existing homes, uh, looking at infrastructure and doing the same, uh, whether it's building new infrastructure that can handle the weather down the road, 
or uh, retrofitting existing uh, um, infrastructure to handle the weather that that will come. Um, that's what needs to be done, and that's where our kind of our work centers on. Robin, stay with me while I get the question out because I think you're going to know what I mean here. But but when Sarah's briefing me on on this roundtable coming up, and she says it's really cool with Robin. She says formerly at the Pembina Institute, now with the Insurance Bureau of Canada, and I'm going interesting. Like I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if the Pembina Institute and the Insurance Bureau of Canada are mingling at the cocktail party. Do you know what I mean? So I do. So so you've got a very fascinating professional background. How does that impact or influence how you view events like? what we're seeing in BC? You know, I think it's funny because of course, yeah, you're right. Insurers are not known um, to, to be going to the same parties as David Suzuki, but there, there is no area of the financial sector that is as impacted by the physical climate impacts of climate change as the insurance sector. Like I'm, I'm 41, the first three quarters of my life insurers paid out on average about $422 million uh, per year, year in insurable damages uh, due to severe weather losses. In the last you know, 10, 12 years, that number's gone up to a shade over 2 billion. Like th- this is impacting their bottom line and, and in a way where um, good corporate citizenship aligns with um, their bottom line in a way that, that couldn't be more direct. So this is, I mean, after Fort McMurray, I don't have numbers in front of me, Robin, but I, I do know anecdotally that people will say, oh, yeah, I mean, insurance rates went up after Slave Lake or you, you, they went up after the Southern Alberta floods or Fort McMurray. I mean, it just happens. Is there consensus or I mean, at least are there rumblings within the industry, the insurance industry that right now this is this is unsustainable? We're going to get to a point where people won't be able to, you know, they won't be able to insure properties. I mean, people may be running uninsured. I don't know what that leads to but but is this are, are we sort of looking ahead and seeing that iceberg and saying we better change course i mean rates are very complex but certainly the uh, increasing impacts of climate change don't push them in the right direction i think the main focus is on frankly the, the same areas that i know glenn focuses on very strongly uh which is that we have to start mitigating this risk like we we don't have a culture of preparedness in this country we never have Um, We're very excited about some of the very recent announcements that the federal government has made and some of the upcoming actions in terms of, you know, building out a national adaptation strategy and fully funding it so that we can start putting in place the adaptation measures that our communities need in order to, to, you know, be able to continue to have um, affordable insurance and, and, uh, you know, and and just be able to live our lives in the way that that we're used to living them, um, even as we know our climate is changing. I mean, our we know that globally, uh, the average um, temperature has gone up a shade over a degree. In Canada, that's two degrees, and in the north, that's three degrees. And there's no reason to believe that as the world continues to heat, that Canada won't heat at twice the rate as the rest of the world. So, yeah, we, we do not live in a static climate anymore, uh, and we have to take the measures to deal with that. I want to ask all three of this. We'll go to Glenn first, Joe next, and then Robin, back to you. Uh, Glenn, you're the one that teed it up. You know, you said we have to talk about hardened and more resilient communities. Uh, it's been an honor of mine, as a matter of fact, to, to MC the Alberta Emergency Management Association conferences, where you get literally five or six hundred people in a room. The stars and bars, as everybody talks about here, with, with regards to you know the high ranking lieutenants and chiefs and, and everybody involved in, in emergency management and first response and a lot of people that have wildfire experience
experience, people with flood experience, and, and you talk to them and learn little things. I learned little things. I did some vegetation clearing around my residential property after listening to a conversation at one of these. I didn't realize that, you know, for example, cedar bushes right under your soffits are a really stupid landscape design. For example, that's one. But when we talk bigger picture, it's going to mean that maybe towns, mountain towns might need bigger buffers around them. I know everybody wants the big lodgepole pines right behind their back deck, but maybe we need to start cutting those back a little bit. Glenn, what does the resilient community of the present and more importantly of the future look like? Let's dig into it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it's a diff- it means different things depending on the hazard that you're talking about. Yeah. So you, you, you're talking basically about fire smarting. So getting fuel away from your home. And, and that's, uh, that's one thing that we have to do both on the private property level and on the community level as well. Um, and, uh, you know, creating buffers is, is one thing, but uh, embers flow far ahead of the fire front and can ignite towns like uh, Fort McMurray. And that's really a big issue. Uh, we know how to build homes that are resilient to wildfire and we got to get on with that work. It's not that we don't know what to do. We do know what to do. It's the political will that really doesn't ex- exist yet. On the flood side, it's more complex. Um, you know, hardening your individual home is one thing. Looking at the community is quite another. And with hazards like flood and like wildfire, you can do everything to your property, but if your neighbor doesn't do something, you're still at risk. And so, you know, it, it takes this uh, community-wide approach, this, um, uh, you know, societal approach where everybody has a role to play uh, to, to build in resilience. Uh, a lot of it has to start, the big picture stuff has to start with political will. What is, I want to ask you to follow up on that. I mean, what is political will? People always talk about political will. I don't know that, I can't say we never see it. Sometimes we see it in directions that people don't appreciate. Political will certainly exists, but, but if a politician through the course of a short election cycle doesn't think that they're going to see return on putting their neck out there and, and, and making unpopular decisions, chances are it's not going to happen. So, so Glenn, how does that happen? Is it, is it public pressure? I mean, what would you forecast might be effective? Well, sometimes it just takes a star, somebody that, that supports uh, an initiative and, and gets it going. The mayor of High River, Alberta, has said, you know, he has made his his uh, town the most flood resilient town in the country. He said this was after the 2013 flooding and they've taken me- many measures in High River to try to uh, prevent a repeat of that uh, flooding from happening. So it was the mayor in that case that really led the charge and got some things changed. Uh, Canmore, Alberta, known very well for wildfire resilience. Um, has done some fantastic things there. So sometimes it just takes one advocate to push. It could be the mayor. It could be somebody on council. Um, it could be a, a citizen. Yeah. But it, it goes a long way sometimes. But when somebody says, you know what, we have to do better, we have to build back better, we have to build new infrastructure better, whatever it happens to be, when that happens at the top and when it happens with the people that pay the checks, uh, things start moving in the right direction. And we need more of that. I should mention High Rivers Mayor Craig Snodgrass was with us just a couple of days ago uh, with Corb Lund, the country singer, talking about coal. I mean, that guy's punching outside his weight class uh, on a lot of fronts. It's great. Joe, I can see you as Glenn's talking. You're sitting there. You're nodding your head. I can tell you're like, will you give me the damn mic, Jesperson? So here it is. I mean, do you see some of this stuff happening? Yes. Uh, well, as I said earlier, some some is happening right now in a in a smaller smaller amount we just need it to to expand and i think uh, robin mentioned something about the national adaptation strategy and that's that's clear we need we need a national strategy and we need 
the government. We need policymakers. Uh, we need the builders. We need stakeholders to all come together. Uh, we have to come together around the common purpose of improving infrastructure resilience. It's not going to come without a cost. Uh, there will be a cost to it. So it's going to take some, I, and I agree wholeheartedly with Glenn, that it takes a, a star, a champion, somebody to champion or an advocate, but it also takes, it's going to take some public pressure. As the, as, as the taxpayers, we're going to have to decide that, yes, we think it's worthwhile to invest. We're going to be willing to, to spend more money because some of this resilience is going to be when you're looking at, for instance, just use a, a bridge. Um, that may have a certain span and it's failed now. Well, what may happen when it's rebuilt, the span may need to be wider to allow more water to go through without washing it out. Um, the protection that was on the river, on the banks to hold in the, those fills, those bridge end fills and, and the road, road end fills needs maybe larger riprap, larger size, more protection, something to protect it. So that all comes with a cost and it's going to be the taxpayer that's going to have to decide, yes, we want to do it, but it's going to take everybody pulling together with that same common purpose. Joe, do you have like, you know, I mean, I, you're going to look at me and say, what a dumb question, but I just have to no. ask you, like, do you have, do you have an, an ish number of what you think that cost increase might look like? For example, if a bridge is going to be $180 million or $300 million for this big, beautiful bridge, you go now a more resilient, you know, climate change ready, fortified bridge. You know, if, if it was going to be 180, now it's going to be 230 or 240. We're talking 30%, 50%, 100%. What do you think? I don't even want to hazard a guess on that particular one because there's well, too you're many going to be bidding for them, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there, there's, there's, two, there's too many variables involved in that particular one. Like just to give you a, a small example, I was involved in some, some flooding that occurred in our area uh, approximately uh, three, four years ago. Um, it, there was a small minor road that had a two foot culvert or a 600 millimeter culvert, a two foot culvert. When we restored it, the, the, the driving surface, we upped it to a one meter culvert or say a three foot culvert. After some design work that was done by the ministry and Ministry of Environment got together and said, look, for some adaptation and some resilience, we're going to change that. We went in and we took it out and we replaced it uh, with a, a two meter pipe arch. So we went much larger just because of the changes that had occurred. So as I said, it, it's, it's not necessary. So it, you know, I, you had something that was existing and we went from 600 mil mil millimeters up to two meters. Uh, that's huge in, in difference. So I don't know what the number is going to be. And there's so many different factors involved. So I, I, I can't even hazard a guess on that. particular. I one, feel sorry. like maybe now's the time though, to have the conversation. We have such short memories as humans. You know what I mean, Joe? Absolutely. I, I was uh, listening to uh, uh, one, uh, one interview just a few days ago and uh, someone mentioned and I, I agree with them that we probably have a six month to maybe 12 month window which has we have everyone's has attention this issue is is front and foremost in front of everybody's mind so this is a time when we need to take some some action and uh, this is something when I was uh, chair of the Canadian Construction Association we commissioned a study and we, we issued a report 
on March 25th of this year, uh, entitled Strength, Resilience and Sustainability. And it's the construction sector's recommendations on adapting to climate change. And really, there's a number of recommendations in it, but but really the first and foremost one is that, as, as I mentioned earlier, is we need to come together and we, we need to align uh, procurement and design must be align, aligned. We must look for and allow innovation to occur as well. There's a lot of intelligent, smart, innovative individuals and companies in this country that will come up with solutions. We just need to give them the opportunity to do it. When we uh, come back from this very quick break, fellas, uh, you have 60 seconds to top up your coffee if you wanted. I can ask Robin Edger from the Insurance Bureau of Canada uh, whether or not people that are rebuilding are required to build back in place or whether it even makes sense for us to rebuild some of these communities. Maybe maybe Lytton. I mean, would half of South Calgary been rebuilt if we were having these conversations back in 2013, 2014? I'll tell you who's not going to put cedar bushes right under your soffits and fascia it's mike at eden landscaping because with more than 20 years experience mike has seen it all he thinks it through and he allows his intuition and his professional experience to to blend and to meld with his creative spirit to create a portfolio like you can see right now at landscapeedmonton.ca. You go, well, I want a bit more of a modern look or I want a bit more traditional look or I want the rustic look or the natural look. Mike goes, yep, check, check, check. We've done it. We've done it. He can put you in touch with people if you want you know, sort of the customer testimonial type of thing. They got it right on their website, landscapeedmonton.ca. Now's a great time to open the door to that conversation so you can hit the ground running in spring. Our friends at Park Power want to remind you that, you know, in the spirit of frugality, in the spirit of keeping more money in your jeans, as they say, the, the wholesale Alberta electricity price over the last while has been really volatile. It's actually been relatively expensive this year. You probably know, right? If you've been on the variable rate or the regulated rate option, you'll notice your power Power bills may have been higher over the past number of months. Well, it's a great opportunity to consider protecting yourself by switching to a fixed rate offering. So Park Power offers flexible fixed rates. You can go one or three year terms. You want to know the best part? You're never locked in. You want to change your mind? It's not like the cell phone company where, no, you got you know, 27 more months left. Can you tell I had a conversation with them this week? 27, not Park Power. And the promo code 2021-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. How great is that? Our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge are thrilled right now to have Ram 1500s back in stock on both their lots. And of course, you can check out that selection online. They've got a limited time offer that ends December 1st. And so you don't want to snooze on this one with great discounts, almost up to 10 grand on the 1500s, up to 10% off MSRP on the Jeep line up trusted brands since 1941 you'll find them under the sponsors tab on our website ryanjesperson.com robin edger hanging out with joe robel glenn mcgillivray three great perspectives as we evaluate what's going on in bc and, and how the country in particular right now that province but bigger picture how we should fortify communities how we should rebuild after natural disasters uh, robin it prompts the question as many people obviously ask should we be building in some of these spots i mean p- more canadians know now than they did two weeks ago that the abbotsford area we drained a lake about 100 years ago to make way for agricultural land and well, it appears as though Mother Nature has something to say about that. We've seen floodplains prove to be problematic. We see communities and boreal forests run major risks. Uh, now, you're obviously here speaking on behalf of the IBC, but maybe a little bit of personal opinion as well, as long as we identify it. I mean, should we be rebuilding in some of these areas? 
You know, it, it's going to be really context specific, um, and it's going to be very dependent on the actions that that government and society are willing to take to mitigate the risk in these areas. Um, there are absolutely there are areas of the country um, we estimate about six to ten percent where, under the current conditions, um, the the homes are not uh, insurable. Um, I think going forward, that means that you have, you know, at, at the highest level, you've got two choices. Either you put the adaptation resilience measures in place to make those homes uh, insurable, to ensure that homes aren't uh, subject to repeated flooding or repeated wildfires, or you have to uh, look at managed retreat. And, and, you know, in different countries around the world, uh, they've taken different approaches. And again, it's, it's very context specific, but, you know, certainly we saw uh, in Washington state over the last five or six years, uh, 700 homes were uh, removed from an area uh, just because they were repeatedly being flooded. And, and the feeling was that the, the costs of making uh, those homes uh, sort of livable and, and safe uh, far exceeded the cost of managed retreat. So yeah, it, it's really going to be uh, dependent on the context. Robin, I know you're going to say, well, Jesperson, it obviously depends on a person's policy and every policy is different. You can't ask me a question like this. It's totally unfair. Uh, that in mind, let me ask you this question. If if somebody has had, and, and I don't want to sort of be, we're all laughing and, and I, I caused that, and, and then I ask you a very serious question, but, but it, let's say somebody right now is going, you know, my 700 $150,000 house and my $15,000 side by side, my $70,000 pickup and all of our belongings and everything is is, is a total loss. Uh, the flood carried away our Quonset and everything's demolished and they're looking at a million dollar claim. And right now they go, we're not quite sure we want to rebuild here after what we just saw. And, and, and we think we might actually move to Moncton with our million dollars, uh, you know, based on the policy. Obviously, there may be caveats in place, but is that an option for people? You know, I, I won't repeat the caveat that you just mentioned, but um, certainly traditionally uh, that was not the case. The, it, it used to be that you had to build in place and yeah. uh, that, that has changed relatively recently where, yeah, it, it is relatively common now where uh, in your policy it is possible to receive actual cash value um, for your home uh, rather, so that you don't have to build in place. And, and it's, and it's uh, to incentivize the sort of behavior that you just uh, described. Glenn, does that need to be part of the conversation on 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 basically loss reduction, catastrophic loss reduction? Do we have to have a national or provincial or municipal conversation about where we will or will not rebuild? There's no question about it. I mean, what we build, how we build it and where we build it are absolutely key. And, you know, as far as the conversation of uh, should we talk about moving people? Uh, I've commented on this in the media many times over the last few years with flooding in, in Ottawa area, New Brunswick once again, places like that. We do have to have that discussion for very high risk uh, people. Uh, in the United States, buyouts are very common. They've had 17 or 18,000 examples of communities that were bought out and moved uh, because of flood risk. Uh, we have some examples of ad hoc uh, projects we've done in Canada, uh, but not a, a enough of them. So we have to talk about this and we have to talk about uh, mandatory buyouts as well. Um, voluntary buyouts don't work. Uh, we tried it in Southern Alberta after 2013 um, and it was an abject failure. Uh, we've had uh, mandatory buyouts in the Toronto area after Hurricane Hazel in 1954 and they were a great success. Um, so kind of two things are key here. Uh, making a, a, a buyout mandatory, number one, and um, 
reimbursing the homeowner for fair market value, pre-flood market value. Those two things are, are go together very well. And what do you, Glenn, just so we understand what you're talking about, mandatory buyouts, like, like, Hey, everybody pick up, you're moving. Yes. Wow. Uh, so, uh, Something like 80 people died in the Toronto area as a result of Hurricane Hazel in 1954. Uh, the government rolled in and said, we're moving you out. Uh, they offered or gave people uh, pre-flood market value for their home. And those communities along the Don River and other places were made in the parks. And those parks flood almost every year now, but nobody gets killed and no property is damaged. Um, we, there was a buyout in, uh, in Sydney, Nova Scotia after the, um, um, actually the Thanksgiving day flood of a couple of years ago and people actually asked for it. It wasn't uh, imposed on them. They asked for it. 18 homes were bought out and, uh, and turned into green spaces. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I'm, ta- I'm taking a look at how we do, you know, expansion of transit infrastructure in urban centers, and it's no different than that. I don't know why I'm acting so surprised. I mean, governments come in and tell entire crescents or entire avenues of people that they're moving, and here's what we're giving you for your house. So, I mean, it's certainly far from unprecedented. Right. Um, but there's a public safety angle to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes we have to ask the question, you know, is it fair for Canadian taxpayers to have to pay for somebody's river view and somebody wants to, you know, continue to live on a river and they get flooded every few years and the yeah. property is damaged and they get public uh, disaster assistance and all Canadians are paying for that. Is that a reasonable thing to do? Is that sustainable? Can we continue this? Uh, these are tough conversations and, you know, my heart would go out to people who are facing this dilemma, but sometimes tough love uh, is in order. And uh, we have to think about this for high, high risk individuals. We're not talking about everybody here, but for people yeah. that are in a very high risk scenario. Hey, th- I, it's a fair point. And when you put it like that, uh, it's going to get people's attention, right? Is, does this deserve to be a, essentially a national liability uh, to protect somebody's view? Joe, I have a question for you, a focused one, but I see you've been scribbling notes and I'm just really <laughs> curious to know what's on your pad of paper. What's jumping out at you? Well, what jumped out at me was uh, when when Glenn was talking about what we do with the high risk situations, I was going back to remembering what you said right at the start of this, Ryan, about the fires and dealing with the cedars. And there's a lot that will happen and has happened. We learn from this. Um, there's, you know, I've, I was in the wildfire area here in the uh, North Okanagan Shoe Swap, and uh, I hadn't really thought about how we would handle our evacuation. Uh, but when we got in that, we were put on notice. Uh, we set a plan in place. Uh, we're ready. I'm not prepared to leave my house. I love my property. I love where we live. It's fine. But I can tell you the next time it comes up, we are m- going to be much more prepared. And I see that happening. I think I- I've seen it happening. Uh, uh, you know, the disaster I dealt with, uh, I know an individual who runs a, uh, a senior's residence in Merritt. And they had to evacuate that senior's residence for the wildfire situation. Uh, they had to, so they did that. They had to again evacuate it due to merit being evacuated, deal with, dealing with their wastewater and their water system problems that they had. They learned an awful lot from the first one. It made their, their move the second time, although difficult, much better. 
and it went much smoother than it did the first time. So, you know, we tend to learn from this. And so there's many things that can happen and will happen as a, as a count of, on account of what this particular emergency event uh, occurred here in British Columbia. Uh, Joe, this is the question I wanted to ask you, and we'll make this last one. Gentlemen, sure. we're so appreciative of your time, but I know nothing about what goes into building something as massive and impressive as the Coquihalla Highway. And as, as white knuckle nerve wracking of an experience as it can be, it's also just an absolute marvel. And so please don't roll your eyes at the question. I would imagine <laughs> that, that clearing space for a highway like that through terrain like that and we could also talk about Rogers Pass and the Crow's Nest Pass, and we could talk about a whole bunch of different highways, is hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Uh, but I also recognize the idea, the theory of sunk cost. And so when we talk about where we should or should not rebuild, do we have to acknowledge that there may be routes, rail, highway, or otherwise, that don't make sense to rebuild? Should we ex- explore the options of rebuilding in different directions or taking different paths? Or or was that work already done, for example, with the Coca Hall in the 1980s? Essentially, it was done. I mean, that's part of what goes into to all. I mean, when you think about uh, living in the interior of British Columbia, um, you know, we take it for granted now with the Coca Hala that uh, from where I live in Vernon, I can get in a vehicle and in five hours, uh, I can be in Vancouver using the Coca Hala highway system. Previous to that, I was a seven-hour drive. The expectation that we have as taxpayers is that is is has increased over the years. So, you know, we've now got all the the transportation routes and the truck traffic that is accustomed to these shorter transportation lines, which all every every cent that they they expend in fuel in transportation costs, we realize in the cost of all our goods and services that we purchase at the store. So. Everybody is looking to try and the ex- as I get through this, the expectation seems to has been increasing over the years and the design designs tend to follow through with that. It comes down to what does the public want and the the government will make that decision. The, they then say this it comes up with a strategy going forward and then set in place. The design is done. And once it's designed, then it will be constructed. Hmm. So, um, you know, I think the Coquihal is, we realize that as a critical piece of infrastructure and it will be rebuilt. They've said now they're going to have it open to uh, single lane traffic in some uh, sections uh, for commercial traffic by the end of January. They've got a good system in place. So they've got process and systems to deal with this quickly and they're doing it. Joe, I, I just want to note in closing, most people hear this on the podcast for people that seen on YouTube, uh, you're wearing a, a moose hide on your lapel. And I just wanted to ask you about it before I thank you for your time. Sure. Well, the moose hide is just, it's a campaign. Um, basically it's, uh, men and, uh, standing up to violence against women and girls. Appreciate that, Joe. Joe Robel is, uh, well, I mean, he's, he's here representing JPW group of companies, including JPW Road and Bridge Incorporated, past chair of the Canadian Construction Association, uh, Glenn McGillivray, adjunct professor in the grad program at York University's Emergency and Disaster Management Program, and Robin Edger, formerly of the Pemina Institute, now National Director of Climate Change. What a cool role at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Gentlemen, thanks for your time and expertise you have delivered today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. You bet. Great conversation there. Nice job, Hoyles. Nice one. I'm taking a look here in the live chat. Some random guy says, truly, the worst thing about politics is that there is no incentive for long-term vision. I totally agree. Yeah, but the the option is, okay, so we have longer terms. Yeah, no thanks. That that also doesn't work. Yeah, we got to find some way to do something about it. Hmm. 
I don't have the solution. If anybody does, you, you, you let us know and we'll talk about it. Tanya says we are failing future generations by being so narrow minded about what we want right now and protecting the status quo. I saw Haas earlier. Saw Haas, I don't have it in front of me. Sorry, pal. But he said something along the lines of, you know, one of the big issues is that the, the hundred year climate events are now every 10 years. Right. Right, Sam. I mean, you look at the, the hundred year flood in Calgary uh, or, 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 you know, the 100 year wildfire. Well, I mean, are we talking Slave Lake v. Fort McMurray or what are we talking? Because 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 those were what was it? Oh, five and twenty. What was it? Twenty three. So we were twenty fifty. So like less than 10 years ish, approximately nine years between those two fires off the top of my head. I might be off. But the point is two of them within a decade. Right. Yeah, it's uh, like I think there's a big misnomer in this whole like one in a hundred year event thing too, because people sort of expect it to be a schedule, like to sort of happen as clockwork. Whereas it's really just <laughs> oh, sort of like, up. you know, yeah, at, at any given Buckle time, up. this is <laughs> this is the probability of this event occurring, um, and it's you know we need to we need to recognize that. You know, maybe maybe the number of, of one in a hundred years is now one in fifty years or one in twenty five years. But like, all, all that really is just saying is these things are going to be more frequent and and happen more likely. And and quit expecting to say, okay, we we had a flood, we're good for a hundred years now. That's not how the system works. Yeah, Dwayne is quite right when he says major cities around the world are, are built obviously by major bodies of water, ports. They had to be for water supplies for shipping. I just the thing that gets me is like tell the hundred year flood news to folks in BC who are bracing for another atmospheric river yeah. and had yes. just dealt with wildfire. Like unbelievable. This is we're not taught like it's it's every season. Crazy fast daddy says my uncle's business and home burnt down in Lytton this year. Says insurance can't come up with enough to cover what he lost. And then he wonders how do you rebuild in Lytton when you're seventy four. I remember this was uh, I don't know how much I should talk about this. This was an insider perspective. You know, fire departments across the province were sending trucks and personnel up to Fort McMurray to, to Wood Buffalo during that fire. And uh, obviously the Fort McMurray Fire Department was like doing what it could. But, you know, you've got entire communities. It's hard to imagine, right? You've got a street where there's 25 houses on fire. Is how, and, and then the whole, uh, you know, what's the word? Um, the cathedral behind a blaze. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And these you got these big ladder trucks and these big trucks. They're just doing what they can. The water infrastructure. I mean, people there keeping the pumps going. I mean, it was an amazing. But you know what else was going on? Some people. Allegedly, I keep having to say, you say we're, we're sneaking back in to town under evacuation order to light their houses up because the nightmare for them would be that all the other houses were burned down and theirs would survive. And they were having pop up house fires. They were having these suspicious fires popping up on streets that had had those fires extinguished days before. Now, someone's going to write in and say, well, Jesperson, there could have been like, you know, embers in the peat moss or there could have been something under the shingles and it could have taken a while. And, the, and that's true. This is from the horse's mouth, from people that were there. And this is touching on Crazy Fast Eddie's point of like rebuilding in Lytton when you're 74. You know, you're 70, you're 75, you're 80 and you're in the RM of Wood Buffalo. You're in Fort McMurray and your neighborhood looks like an absolute disaster. I mean, it is a disaster zone. But your house and the one beside you survived and then and, and the next six or seven years are going to be construction and your house is 
quite frankly, going to be the weathered one on the block and the, the value is not going to be there. And you're and all of your stuff reeks like smoke and quite people were going in trying to burn their houses down to kind of share, I guess, in some of the rebuild options. I mean, and you look back and you go, well, I mean, that's, first of all, a criminal offense. Second of all, you, like kind of part of you goes. Do yeah, you blame them. Yeah. I'm not saying go light your house on fire. I'm not saying cheat your insurance company. I'm not saying commit crimes. I'm certainly not saying start houses on fire. I'm just saying people under extraordinary circumstance are faced with extraordinary uh, polls on what their typical actions might be. And that was certainly the case in Fort McMurray. And I think when we talk about rebuilds, none of us really I see a couple of questions, comments on here. I'll get to in a second. People say, you can't, unless you've walked miles in those shoes, you do not know what it's like. A total loss, a total loss, a house fire flood, unless you've experienced it, you have no idea. Tanya says, I think this is one of those I have questions on the conspiracy theory pyramid. I mean, I'm talking to people that were putting people in handcuffs, Tanya. So, I mean, I trust the source. I want to read this email from Kim. She wrote in and said, I wanted to send a personal congratulations and a thank you for one year of programming on Real Talk as a listener, as a friend of the show. I wanted to share how deeply meaningful it's been on my personal journey. Kim says when the show launched, I was listening after uh, morning runs. She was getting out and getting active. She says it was kind of a pandemic commitment to myself to get mentally healthy through movement. And I would listen to the show after these runs while I worked from home. My 14th year of self-employment, feeling the best I had in a long time, mentally, physically, in spite of COVID. I was so jazzed to find a community of people to learn with and to learn from by virtue of a show asking the right questions and having guests with insights I hadn't heard before. Literally, last fall was full of goodness for me. And on December 31st, you had that special show for Patreon supporters. Uh, Kim says I missed it because I wasn't feeling well. And a day later, two days after my 49th birthday, I had a cerebral stroke. And I went from feeling my very best to having a stroke. I was in the hospital from January 1st to the 3rd. Ryan, I was pissed at you because you had those days off when I needed you most. <laughs> she says, I'm kidding. Going from feeling great to, to just that screw job that life is so unpredictable was such a roller coaster. And I was so grateful to be alive, right? The stroke could have been worse thanks to the fast actions of one of my daughters and my husband. But being alive is not the same as being well. And when you're not well and you're trying not to sink into depression, I found that the antidote is to have good habits and daily joys that can be some, seen as a, a commitment. And for me, that meant real talk, Ryan Jesperson, having good distractions, good people to talk to, listening to good conversations about fun things and tragic things. It's been a literal lifeline in my recovery. Kim says, I'm still recovering from brain injury symptoms, but I'm improving every month. I've not been able to return to working full-time hours yet, which of course sucks. But what I have gained is more time than I would have without the injury to listen regularly to the show. And by listening, I mean learning because of all that I've learned, all of it. I chose to invest time and to support this strategic campaign of a council candidate who can affect some of the change I've acknowledged in my course so needed. Look at that. She got involved. She says we need these unicorns in politics. And even though I wasn't feeling well enough as I thought I needed to, I did anyway, because it matters to have the right people at the table. And I've deeply absorbed this premise from this show. And I'm not the only person who invested time into recent elections because of the knowledge building and the inspiration that happens because of real talk. The ripples of influence are many. So 
Ripples, says Kim. Ripples of positive influence from Real Talk are now the fabric of our society. And change makers and influencers talk to you and listen to you, your guests and each other. And it creates ripples. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking your own challenging situation, turning it into something so purposeful and so fun. This is a community, not just a show. She says it's an unbelievable team. Between the three of you and your team in the background, I should acknowledge them, Josh and Katie and Tanya and Dwayne and everybody else that does an amazing job for us. The work is noticed, and I look forward to the next year ahead. Ripples, says Kim. There are many, and they matter. What a great email that is. I should note that when I throw emails on the floor, it's my way of showing respect to the email. If I were to disrespect an email, it sounds more like... Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want you to remember that the Flamethrower Burger is the burger they've got in the spotlight. It's the star burger for the month of November. This is the one with 100% all beef patty, that fiery flamethrower sauce, the crisp jalapeno bacon, those fresh lettuce and tomato, that combo that you've come to expect between those warm toasted Dairy Queen buns. Are you getting hungry yet? Well, just wait till I tell you about the blizzards. Like the big Oreo blizzard that, in my mind, is in the top three. I mean, I'm a big Smarties blizzard guy, too. But there's nothing like a flamethrower burger and a blizzard to chill your mouth back down at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. If you're going, okay, yeah, I mean, Dairy Queen's going to hook me up for lunch, but what are you going to do about my Christmas dinner? Hey, what about the holiday gathering that I, quite frankly, just don't feel like cooking for? Well, my friends... Friesen Brothers is here for you. They've got a team of Red Seal chefs. They've got ready-to-go Christmas options. And I really today want to celebrate their It's Christmas and No Family Should Go Hungry campaign to support local food banks. Friesen Brothers has been family-owned for more than 65 years, and they get what community means. You can check out that initiative online. We encourage you to support it in whichever way you possibly can. And you can find details on their website, Friesen.com, about their pre-made holiday meals. You throw them in the oven, you heat them up, all the work is done. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Our friends at Local Waste have been keeping it local in Alberta and Saskatchewan for more than a quarter century providing construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection. We've got this local waste bin. A few blocks away from my house, I was telling you, they're just doing this beautiful exterior renovation of this place, but obviously it means a lot of construction waste. you got to trust the company that's managing that service for you, right? You don't want the neighbors to be ticked off. You need the contractors to have the resources they need. Local waste is locally and family-owned, so when you call them, if there's an issue, they pick up. Real-life humans do. You can call them by their first names, like Mikkel and Lauren and Chris. And they'd love to talk to you if you'd like to request a quote. You can do so for free right now at localwaste.ca. As we wrap up each broadcast week, our friends at Local Waste give us an opportunity to blow off a little bit of steam. Now, typically, these are emails received to talk at ryanjesperson.com. But as we celebrated our one-year anniversary, as part of our question of the week presented by Y Station, we give you a chance to, well, tee up on me. And so here is a Mean Tweets Jespo edition of Trash Talk! Yeah, that's right. Through one year, these are some of the thoughts you have on me. One audience member says, I'm always curious to know how Ryan fits his massive head through a door. It's easy. Bigger doors. Quit being so nice to one of your guests who deserve to be hit between the eyes with a sledgehammer for their responses. I'm sure you will know the ones I mean. 
Brian, you spent too much time talking about Calgary and Edmonton. I wish you'd cover other parts of Alberta, too. Lethbridge is Alberta's third largest city, but we are totally ignored by most of the media. We've talked a ton about Lethbridge. The fire chief, Mayor Chris Spearman. We talked about election results. Your MLA, Shannon Phillips. Come on, Lethbridge. We love you. Ryan, stop adjusting your mic every 30 seconds. Seriously, Sam's an engineer, and I'm sure he can tighten up the screws to keep it in place. It's not like you're growing or shrinking during every show. Thank you for your feedback. Hey, Jespo, I can't tell how old you are. 30, 40, 50, 60? Your clothes are all over the map. Pick a lane. What about this one? Jespo sure loves to hear himself talk. I'd love to hear his wife do a trash talk. I bet Ryan leaves his socks on the floor. Socks? Jeans, underwear, jackets, hoodies. Ryan, stop fucking yelling during the ads. I'm trying to listen at work under the radar of my employer and everything's going well until you start shouting out like Friesen Brothers cinnamon buns or get to the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and I get busted every time. Advertising works. Hey, Jespo, were you wearing a bathing suit in the Edify cover shot or were you honestly butt naked and are there outtakes? Like those that wear the kilts. I'll never tell. How about this one? Sometimes Ryan needs to shut up. Thank you for your feedback. Hey, Ryan, please stop being so obsessed with beer. There are other really great things to drink, uh, not including. I mean, there's, yeah, sure. There's like the great, you know, Merlots and Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays you talk about. But what about coffee options, too? I mean, has Real Talk ever tackled the debate about who makes the best roasted coffee in the region, for example? Anyway, don't be afraid of other options, Ryan. Live a little. Just yesterday, I signed a contract. Real Talk has an official coffee sponsor. We'll be revealing it next week. Hey, Ryan, you want some trash talk? Well, then what's with reading just four or five emails for trash talk? Well, you know what? Your guys get tired from reading people's opinions trash talk could be a whole show itself and also what's up with the bad strip bar dj voice you use when reading trash talk i've been waiting for you to say welcome candy to the stage uh this is more of a strip club voice don't forget to tip your server this one from michael who says you want trash talk all right here it is hard and fast celebrating international men's day barf like what is this 1950 when is real talk going to promote straight pride week and white history month barf just like those men don't need or deserve an international day because unfortunately every day is a men's day going back to the beginning of time the positive and supportive discussion about men's mental health was great. Absolutely do that. I don't know who comes up with these international days, but they need to give their head a shake about this one. I'm surprised that neither Ryan nor Sarah addressed how potentially problematic that day is. Well, I will say Sarah plan Sarah canceled, as a matter of fact, my planned roundtable with Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and Matt Lauer, where we were going to talk about Me Too and the cancel culture and how it's all a bunch of BS for International Men's Day, which is why it's good you were here, Sarah. I wanted to talk about how many women is too many women in a board room or what is with these pronouns anyway but instead we focused on ways that men can look in the mirror and better themselves because men's mental health is something we don't talk about enough and to be serious for like two seconds michael i appreciate you being here for every single one of those conversations and we'll wrap up with this one from fatima who says you want trash talk jesperson how you handle the real talk point system is trash she says i've been in on the live chat she says commenting making incredible jokes being generally delightful for an entire year now and i've never been awarded one damn point so who's awarding these points and what goes on with the points? And where do you keep score? And who's in first place? It makes no sense and is driving me up the wall. You need to accept the fact that you suck at being in charge of the Real Talk point system and give it up to Sam or Sarah. I'm sorry, but I'm competitive and it had to be said. 
Oh, and congratulations on one year of Real Talk. That from Fatima. Fatima, unfortunately, your bad attitude about my leadership and the Real Talk point system has docked you five points. Here's hoping you can recover. Now, when it comes to who's in first place, we're all the real winners because you beauties show up every single day with your senses of humor and your empathy dialed in. And we are so excited about what year two looks like. Coming up next week, Rick Mercer joins us to get into his new book, Talking to Canadians. And you know, Brittle Star, one of the great Canadian treasures. He's going to have his own heritage moment soon enough. Hoyles has him booked for next week. In the meantime, Real Talkers, if you're thinking Black Friday today, but you want to go shop somewhere that's doing absolutely nothing with regards to sales and keeping their prices locked in, you can check out our merch page at ryanjesperson.com. We'll see you Monday! Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.